The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colours, they fly. Should be careful about criticising those who have. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepker. Well, what's dominating the agenda today is reports of a squabble between the Treasury and the Business Department. The Treasury fiercely denying that it has had any kind of talks with the Business Secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, on alleviating the high energy price crisis, despite Kwarteng saying that they had. Now, Labour have called it an unseemly squabble. Here's the Shadow Economic Secretary to the Treasury, Pat McFadden. The Treasury have not only accused the Business Secretary of making things up, but they've gone out of their way to say that they're not involved in any talks about helping these industries. If they're not involved, they should be. Well, another crisis coming rather close this week is a further clash on the post-Brexit agreement over Northern Ireland. The Brexit Minister David Frost on Tuesday will seek a change to the Northern Ireland Protocol. He called the situation over the trade agreement serious as the UK pushes the EU to scrap the deal completely. But the EU has refused to budge. Now, the rift threatens to erupt into a full-scale trade war and raise community tensions much further in Northern Ireland. Well, let's uh, go on to our top interview this morning because one of the key changes that has emerged out of the pandemic is the importance of local and regional leaders in dealing with COVID-19 and its aftermath. Now, these leaders have their own mandate and often their own agenda too to deal with the challenges for their area. Well, one of the figures who's gained prominence for his initiatives in trying to better what is one of the most deprived areas in the country is Jamie Driscoll. He's mayor of the North of Tyne Combined Authority. He joins us now. Jamie, thanks for being with us here on Bloomberg Westminster. First, let's talk about what is grabbing the headlines. How big a problem in your area is the surge in energy prices for your people and your businesses there? Good morning, Roger. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, it is a real problem. Um, people are seeing bills rising, um, you know, if you include petrol rises, more than £400 a year. Working families are losing £1,000 a year with the end of the universal credit uplift. Inflation's outstripping wages, real terms pay cuts are what people are facing. Um, you know, it's, um, Boris Johnson, I think, is one of the white walkers. Winter is coming <laughs> and the North remembers. So, you know, in terms of political impact, I think they are also losing the red wall through this. Okay, what concerns do you have then practically about food, about supplies, about heating over the winter? And is there anything you can do about it? Yeah, my role as the Metro Mayor is, is very much about economic regeneration. And this is one of the, when we talk about things like food supply, particularly energy prices, this is something that is so strategic that any government should be in control of it. Um, you know, I'm not sure the extent to which this is delivering on taking back control. We have a situation where industry has no stability. And if you, if you have stability, that's what businesses need. They can plan. 
Um, you know, we're in a situation now where suddenly people are happy when Russia's Gazprom is deciding to increase supply. What happened to Britain ever having its own energy plan on this? We're in the middle of a, a climate emergency. We need to be transitioning. And the, the number of things that particularly I'm pushing for very heavily are things like the retrofitting of homes so that the dependence on fossil fuel energy is actually reduced in the first place. The government had their Green Homes Grant. Um, that was a, a complete fiasco. They abandoned it. That should have been insulating around 2 million homes. Um, the, the, the Net Zero Homes Plan that was brought in by Gordon Browning, as far back as 2007, the Conservative government abandoned that in 2015, with two years, but with six said- months notice. But as you say, that's a very long term uh, or could be a very long term issue. Is there anything that you can do in in the short term for the area? When it comes to things like control over gas supply and things like that, this is clearly a matter for a mixture between the regulator and the government departments. Um, This is something that I have no legal powers over whatsoever. Um, And when you're talking about gas supplies, they they clearly need to be looked at as a national basis. There's a lot of things I think should be devolved, but I still do believe in the nation state. Um, So from that point of view, it is is a bit alarming when we see headlines where you've got different government departments saying that the other side has been lying when they said they've spoken to them. So this really requires government to get a grip. Okay, what about the situation in terms of the supply chain? We're hearing a lot about this, the problems, whether it's HGV drivers or whatever it is, that means that in many parts of the country, uh, the shelves are not as full as they should be, and that seems likely to go all the way up to Christmas. I mean, if I were to walk around the shelves in Newcastle, what would I see? It is a problem, Roger. Um, In terms of things like petrol stations, actually, there isn't the problem here that there is elsewhere in the country. Um, I'm not claiming that's a personal intervention. I think that's more just to do with um, our geography than anything else. Um, And likewise, in the supermarkets, there are issues that certain foodstuffs aren't available. Um, You know, if you you look at pulses, those shelves, sections of shelves are there and things like that. Um, And this is, again, it's one of those things that in his speech last week, Boris Johnson was blaming the industry for not investing in infrastructure and roadside laybys and things like that. You know, there's, this is one of those things that something that's so fundamental to the stable running of a country, it does require a plan. And when you've got the, the government, you know, missing in action, arguing amongst themselves about who's supposed to be in charge of it, it's clear that no one is in charge. And that's what we do need. Now, there is a way you can deal with a lot of this. Um, we don't have that much power, but we have been training uh, lorry drivers. I think there's, it's not a huge number, but 74 have come on that we put into a uh, program that we put into place. Um, if that was rolled out on a national basis, you would find you have several thousand more lorry drivers, which would make a difference. Okay, so that's for the lorry driver situation. What about universal credit? I mean, on top of prices going up and the increase in national insurance tax that's coming uh, next year, obviously the uplift in universal credit uh, has gone. How big an impact will that have um, on on people in your area? It is. It's going to have a big impact, Caroline, sadly. Um, we should remember that universal credit, some of the people who are going to be hit hardest by this are actually people who are working but on low wages. And it is going to see a lot of children um, having a Christmas in poverty. The answer to it is actually is to raise wages. Um, we shouldn't ever really be in a position where people are working and still need state subsidy in order to, to be above the poverty line. So the 
plan that we've got in the combined authority is to have a zero carbon, zero poverty northeast. So we've got, I've created over 4,000 jobs in the pipeline. Many of the people are already employed in those. And they're all backed by our good work pledge, which means that people get secure contracts. They know what hours they're getting. They will get at least the real living wage, which is not, which is more than the minimum wage. And it's all of these sorts of things that actually come together to make a difference. And that actually has tremendous backing from the business groups, the Chamber of Commerce, the CBI, the Federation of Small Businesses, all came together with us and the trade unions to come up with this. And when you get the trade unions and the business organisations saying this is a good idea, then you know you're onto a winner. That's the sort of approach I would like to see us have nationally uh, and not leave it abandoned to this sort of um, every man for himself approach. Now, uh, Jamie, something rather big happened in your neck of the woods in the last week or so, which was the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United. Um, not uncontroversial. What's your view? Uh, yeah, the only thing black and white in this whole deal, I think, is Newcastle United's home strip. Um, it is. It's a very complicated issue. Um, you can't deny um, and should not deny the, the issues with Saudi Arabia and its human rights record. Um, I ran a marathon to raise money for Amnesty International. Um, but the idea that somehow Newcastle United fans are responsible for this, um, which is some of the tone that's coming out, I think is, is totally wrong. Um, you know, Newcastle have had an owner in Mike Ashley who essentially has been trying to offload the club for the last 12 years. The investment has been uh, terrible. You know, it's parts of the, the ground that need painting. Jackie Milburn's statue was walking past that the other day. And the lettering on it is faded. These are things that, you know, a club that has pride in itself should be looking after. So I understand mm -hmm. the fans' jubilation of getting some investment. Um, one of the things that I am quite heartened about is the new owners have been very keen to say they're going to continue to invest heavily in women and girls' footballs. Uh, football, they'll be supporting the Rainbow Laces project, you know, dealing with homophobia. Um, and so that's encouraging. And, uh, and if anything, um, the continued um, investment in the Newcastle okay. United Foundation is, is going to be good. Yeah, there's no women's Saudi football team, is there? I mean, to say that the issue is complicated is surely disingenuous. Um, all right, that's nice. I understood there were quite a lot of Saudi women's football teams. Um, and there's a semi-professional Saudi football team, was, was what I was told. Um, but I don't have that data in front of me, Caroline. Yeah, yeah, but, but Jamie, I mean, the point is clear. I mean, you talked about homophobia there. I mean, it's illegal to be homosexual in Saudi Arabia. This is blood money, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it is. It is illegal and it's wrong. Um, so there's no equivocation about that. What I'm not sure about is how the buying of Newcastle United is going to make anything worse in Saudi Arabia. I mean, certainly um, the, the people of Tyneside are very, very strong on being welcoming and warm. And um, everything we do as a combined authority has really strong business. We have a gender pay gap of zero. There's a lot of people talk about that. But I'm one of the few organisation leaders who's actually delivered it. So when we talk about football money, a lot of it is very, very dubious. It really is. When we look at the Saudi PIF, the Public Investment Fund, they've, put, they've invested more in Twitter, more in Disney, more in Facebook than they have in Newcastle United. Um, mm. So the idea that you know, the fans can choose who buys their club, I think, is, is frankly cloud cuckoo land. Um, so the issue is, is how do you engage with it? And whenever I am talking to the club, I'll be saying to them, make sure you push these messages. Make sure that 
you know, a country like Saudi Arabia, which is a long, long way behind. Britain has, has its issues, we really do. But Saudi Arabia is so far behind Britain in terms of human rights that Jamie. let's make sure that this is an opportunity to push them to raise their game. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, Britain is facing a pilot shortage that could hamper the opening of the travel industry again after the COVID pandemic. The Daily Telegraph's reporting hundreds of aircrew took early retirement or changed career during the pandemic, and that's at least double the usual levels. Ministers are concerned that a lack of pilots could impede a rebound in flights to pre-pandemic levels, while the UK's recently eased entry rules for foreign travellers in a bid to boost tourism post-Brexit labour shortages are threatening the nation's economic recovery. Meanwhile, the owner of Liberty Steel has pledged to restart its plants in Rotherham and Stroxbridge in South Yorkshire this month, saving the, quote, substantial majority of a thousand jobs. Sanjeev Gupta's conglomerate GFG Alliance is pumping £50 million in cash into the business. The group has also refinanced debts at its Australian steel and mining businesses. So effectively, the plan is to gradually repay the rest of the debt by June 2023 to key lenders like Credit Suisse and the collapsed Greensill Capital. Previously, the debt was expected to be repaid next year. But Roger, a key focus on whether those jobs will be saved. Yeah, very, very key at the moment, particularly with the end, of course, of furlough. Now, here, figures show unvaccinated pregnant women make up almost a fifth of the most critically ill COVID patients in England. The National Health Service is urging expectant mothers to get their jabs, insisting they are safe. England's chief midwife says it's a stark reminder the COVID-19 jab can keep pregnant women and their babies safe and out of hospital. So a few political stories we're watching for you today. But perhaps the main one is this. The UK says that it will push for a significant change to the Northern Ireland Protocol and has drafted legal texts of key changes that could speed a revision of the treaty. The protocol is the most contentious part of the post-Brexit arrangements and has left the European Union and the British government marred in a spat over trade flows into the province. It is all set up for a worsening of relations between Brussels and Dublin. Well, joining us now to discuss this is Bloomberg's Peter Flanagan, who is with us live in Dublin, and our Brussels Bureau Chief, Kevin Whitelaw. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Peter, let me just start with you. What is up for discussion? Um, What room is there either side um, in in order to act on this protocol issue that has been a thorn for everybody, really, for many, many months? Yeah, so since the Brexit deal was agreed um, at the start of late late last year at this point, um, the the Northern Irish Protocol was a key part of it to um, kind of help get the deal over the line and avoid a border on the island of Ireland. Um, the, since then, the UK has raised various issues about it, and um, most most of them centre on the fact that they treat Northern Ireland differently to the rest of the UK, and that there are checks on some goods moving from the rest of the UK into Northern Ireland. And um, the UK has repeatedly raised concerns about it; they want certain changes to it. 
And now um, David Frost, the UK's Brexit Minister, is due to make a speech on Tuesday. And some of those details of that speech appeared in the UK papers over the weekend, um, where he will apparently call for a significant change to the Northern Ireland Protocol, and in particular wants a European Court of Justice jurisdiction over how the protocol is operated removed. Um, that has caused um, appears to have caused concern within the EU, and Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney repl- responded quite quickly, um, accusing the UK of um, shifting the playing field and introducing a new red line in the talks, and essentially questioning if the UK really wants an agreement on the protocol or not. Well, Kevin, let me pick up on that from the, from the Brussels point of view, because what Lord Frost has been talking about is activating a particular clause um, that, that nullifies the rest of it. I mean, and that is in the agreement. I mean, it is a, a legitimate way forward, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's a legitimate way forward, but, but from the perspective of Brussels, this is also about um, the UK trying to change something that it agreed to not very long ago. Um, so so uh, I think, um, you know, from the EU's perspective, uh, they uh, are say they're absolutely ready to to present a package of what they're calling flexibilities, so tweaks, things that would that would address what whatever specific problems are identified on the ground. So, on Wednesday, we're expecting the EU to come forward with its proposal, which will not be a renegotiation of the treaty, something that Brussels has ruled out. Uh, no one here wants to reopen the Brexit process. There's still nightmares from from that entire negotiation. Uh, so, so they're planning instead to go ahead and present some flexibilities. These are specific things to address problems like the importation of medicine or some of the rules uh, uh, surrounding uh, food inspections and customs rules, things like that. And, and so, so those are the kinds of things you see very, very specific, practical kinds of changes that, that, that Brussels is ready to, to, to do. Um, but, um, you know, obviously at this point, it looks like the, uh, uh, the, uh, David Frost has essentially pre-rejected um, the, the proposal from Brussels. Uh, uh, the, the one thing I'd caution is that there are a, a lot of actual working-level discussions that have been ongoing and, and are continuing to, to go on between between London and Brussels. So um, there's a possibility that some of the high-level lo- high posturing will not actually materialize in the threats. Peter, um, what is the risk then on the ground in terms of Northern Ireland? There was a flare-up of tensions over the summer and there perhaps are also uh, worries as we go towards Christmas about um, about stocking of shelves, as there are really across the UK. How risky is all of this um, for tensions, communal tensions within Northern Ireland? Yes, as you said, there, there were tensions over the summer back in sort of April, May time. There were essentially some riots in Northern Ireland, the sort of worst period of violence in years in the in Belfast. Um, and, you know, the DUP leader, Jeffrey Donaldson, that's, that's the main unionist party in Northern Ireland that wants to remain, that wants Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK. And he has made quite plain that, the, that his party will essentially drop, you know, stop cooperating with anything to do with the protocol. Um, has questioned and um, the Irish government's motives has um, you know has, has made very plain his, his opposition to the protocol and that his party will do what it takes to have the protocol removed and has um, implicitly threatened to uh, to pull out of the power sharing government within Northern Ireland the devout government there so it is very tense in Northern Ireland there's no question about that now that's not to say that it's on the verge of tipping into sort of the troubles which decimated the, the region for more than two decades, nothing like that. But there's certainly communal tensions at the highest level in in years. There's no question. 
And picking up on that, Peter, I mean, is there a sense that this is a solvable problem? Because it seems to be based on a central issue of whether there is or isn't a border, whether there is or isn't uh, a place where things have to be checked on the way. Uh, and you can't have something both there and not there at the same time. Uh, and many people see this as the central problem, particularly in a way for unionists who say if there is a border, that is a de facto uh, situation, whether it's in the Irish Sea or, or between Belfast and Dublin. Yes, so people who um, who support the protocol say, you know, this gives Northern Ireland the best of both worlds. They're still very much part of the UK, you know, full access to the UK or a version of full access. But then they also have unfettered access to the EU, so they can move, they can trade with the EU without any penalty, without any extra duties or anything like that. So in pure economic terms, you can say that Northern, Northern Ireland has the best deal going here. They don't have to worry about the various checks that they would have had before if, if there was a hard border between North, Northern Ireland and the Republic. Um, what unionists often say to this, though, is that you know it's more than economics. This is about sovereignty. This is about identity. This is about what country you're part of as much as anything else. And then in addition to that, you now have goods being checked traveling from the UK to Northern Ireland, and that can be certain types of food, that can be medicine, that can be a lot of other things that were never there before. So that's, in their eyes, that's a fundamental weakening of Northern Ireland's link with the, mm. with the UK, and that's something that can't be tolerated. So, you know, as I say, it's a question of economics versus sovereignty in many respects, and depending on what, what side of the fence you sit on in that argument, that will often dictate your view of whether the protocol is a positive or not. Kevin, how much appetite do you think there is for compromise on either side or uh, certainly in Brussels? How much actual focus is there on this issue? As you say, you know, Brexit was long and difficult and painful from the Brussels side. How much are politicians there focused on this I mean, they really, they really don't want to spend any time on it if they don't have to. I mean, this, this, the, the feeling in Brussels is definitely that we. That's why we had this negotiation. We sweated it. No one, no one was entirely happy with with the end product, which is the way you know it's a decent negotiation. And um, and and this was all, you know, the broad framework was agreed to by by the UK, um, and now they're just trying to sort of unilaterally change it. That's the view from London, uh, from Brussels. Uh, so no, there's not a ton of interest in 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 anything that 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 would involve reopening uh, that negotiation. In part because once you reopen part of it, the concern is what else do you then then uh, you know would 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 someone else try to to to, to reopen as well? So I think there is at the same time a, a recognition that there are some flaws in in some of the way these things could be implemented. Some things that need to be adjusted. I think the medicines example is the most obvious one and, and the pressing one. And, and EU officials have been very clear that they're ready to address any of the practical issues and try to deal with the movement of, of goods and people and try to actually make sure that that, that commerce is, is protected. And so I think there is a sense in Brussels, um, as, as sort of Peter referred to, that, that the, the, the protocol done right with some tweaks could actually really be a real boon for, for, for Northern Ireland. And, and uh, uh, they, there's a the feeling that, that a lot of this is really being driven by by politics in, in London and, and a desire to, to by the government to distract from a whole set of other issues at home. Yeah, so Kevin, I mean, in a sentence or two, because we're coming to the end, essentially there is an appetite for solving it and potentially there is a solution. I mean, there's a solution from the Brussels side. Uh, it's just not at all clear that that's what, that's what London's actually interested in. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.